the nation station Lem I, good day and welcome to this week's episode of Perspective. I'm Dolan Mercer here with you until two o'clock. Today we're taking a look back at a crucial Tinwald committee hearing which took place last week. In March 2018, a panel was formed to review the effectiveness of government's current whistleblowing policy and any relevant legislation. Whistleblowing is the act of drawing public attention or the attention of a figure in authority towards perceived wrongdoing, misconduct or unethical activity within an organisation. Onkin MHK Julie Edge was appointed to chair this committee and is joined by MLC's Kerry Sharp and Jane Poole-Wilson. To begin with, they heard from several representatives from within government, senior figures from the Financial Services Authority, Health Department, HR and Industrial Relations, for example. But this summer, the committee decided to give members of the public the chance to submit evidence, extending the invite to anyone with any experience of or views relating to the island's whistleblowing process. What followed was a public meeting with a Mr Rob Sutton. He received a record-breaking six-figure payout at a recent employment tribunal following his dismissal from Creechurch Capital. Mr Sutton had raised concerns about practices at the firm with the Financial Services Authority and later proved that was the reason he was fired. Let's listen to what he had to say, speaking to the panel of Kerry Sharp, Jane Poole-Wilson and Julie Edge. Mr Sutton, we would like to thank you very much for coming in today to talk to us about your experience of making protected disclosures. I'm going to ask you to start by outlining that what occurred in your case beginning when you realised that there was an issue which needed to be reported. We will try to hold any questions till the end of that. Okay, thank you, no problem. Um, thanks for having me. Um, my case has been quite well documented now, um, and it's, it's long. Um, three years in total and the actual case itself is quite complex too so I'll try and keep it short but essentially I was acting as a portfolio manager looking after a large value account and um, there's a relationship I had since I'd started the company I was working at and about halfway with a bit further than that two years into looking after them um, there was a change in process proposed to me that um, I felt really didn't sit right with me. Um, I tried to resist it, I gave my own opinions on it, um, I said it was a ludicrous thing to do, in not as many words, um, but I was essentially overruled and ignored I suppose, so um, I didn't really have any further avenues to go down, so I just went with the procedure, uh, followed it. Um, the change then led to um, the use. I had to use WhatsApp basically to take deal instructions. Was the way it ended up. It was meant to be that I was going to take these instructions off an unrecorded phone line. Um, didn't sit right to me. It's clear, quite clearly the way the relationship was formed. We were meant to have discretionary management over this group of accounts. So the idea that we were receiving. Um, suggestions of how to deal in the first place never really sat well with me but then when they want to make a move to a system whereby there was no record whatsoever of these suggestions coming in and I was meant to represent them as my own ideas um, and sign them off it just it just didn't make any sense it didn't sit well with me I tried to change it 
Um, I was overruled, so I didn't really have any choice. So I went along with it. Um, to my good fortune, the person that was giving me these deal instructions decided to start sending them to me by WhatsApp, uh, which is a phone-based messenger service. Um, as she did that, I just kind of collected them on my work phone. I didn't see the need to delete them. I just kept them there. So to me, they helped resolve ambiguity. I could reproduce them when I needed to. Um, and the audit trail kind of continued to be where, as it used to have been. Um, as I say, I didn't like the way the relationship was going, so I reported it to senior management. Um, they weren't interested. I reported it to compliance. Compliance were interested, they did a report on it, and I believe they contacted the FSA. Um, six months down the line, nothing had been resolved, nothing had changed. I was still taking these instructions over the phone and WhatsApp. Um, and the FSA came in and asked me about the relationship. Um, I explained all my concerns to them. They said, have you got a copy of um, these transcripts? I said, yeah, I can print them out off my phone. Gave them to the FSA and that should have been it really. But thereafter, um, I was off work for a period. Nothing was really happening. I was starting a new job, everything looked okay. Then the FSA released a visit report to my former employer. When that came in, uh, everything changed and I got wind pretty quickly that they were trying to look for someone to kind of pin the blame on and they picked me strangely because I was the one that had, I, I'd caused them so much grief basically. I think they tried to kind of pick on me, um, single me out as some kind of a rogue individual was something I was called. Um, but it was all out in black and white. I hadn't done anything wrong. Um, I was following rather than what the company wanted me to do, which clearly wasn't right. I was following what um, the wider industry would expect me to do. So I'm a member of the Chartered Institute of Securities Investment, and you know your code is you're meant to follow. Uh, you're meant to be transparent. You're meant to be ethical. Um, you're meant to engage with regulators. All these kind of things. So I just follow that code instead. Um, it all got very messy. I got called into an investigative meeting, which was clearly an attempt to kind of make me pin the blame on either someone else or take the blame myself. Uh, I knew something was going on, so I recorded it um, covertly. Uh, not long afterwards, I was then kind of pressurized into trying to make a written statement. Um, I think the angle of it was trying to deflect blame from the people who actually were to blame. And then um, I refused, and ultimately that ended up in me being called to a disciplinary meeting on my final day of work at 4pm, when I was already signed off. Uh, no, at that point I was off on garden leave. Um, I refused, because I hadn't been given the 48 hours that I was supposed to be given. Uh, I didn't have time to prepare, I knew I wasn't going to be treated fairly, and it just seemed like a pointless exercise, because I had a new job that I was meant to be going to anyway. So I refused to turn up. Um, then over the weekend, I got a letter saying I'd been dismissed, which I just thought was strange, to be honest. I didn't really consider much of it. Um, my former employer obviously didn't think that was enough damage, so then they went out of their way to tell the FSA. The FSA weren't too bothered because they knew the real story, I think. Can't speak for them, but that's what I would suspect. Um, again, not enough damage, so then they then went on to contact my new employer to tell them that I'd been dismissed for whatever reasons they made up. 
Um, my new employer contacted me, asked me about it. I couldn't say a word. It was protected disclosure. Um, real serious stuff we're talking about as well. It's not just minor mis mishaps. It's big stuff. Um, so I couldn't say a word to them, and they naturally refused to employ me, which is entirely fair enough. I completely appreciate their stance. Um, and then that led me on a very dark path for three years. That's ultimately ended up me up here. So, um, although that was kind of lengthy, that's only the start of it. And I guess that's probably the bit that you guys are going to be more interested in is how how you go about going through whistleblowing. Um, yeah. So, ask away. Hope that made sense. Now, there's probably bits missing from it because it, it's huge. It's big. Yeah. Big story. Okay, well, thank you for trying to keep it concise and give us a, an overview, really, um, of it. So, um, do you want, do you want to start, Jane? Or? Yes, um, thank you, um, no Rob, for that. Just, just going back. I mean, what you've described is you were you were doing what you thought was the right thing to do. Uh, so you understood that what you were being asked to do didn't sit well with you, yeah. and you talked about trying different avenues. Did you at any point think, I am blowing the whistle, or did you just regard it as uh, something that yeah. you thought, this doesn't sit well with the code of practice I should operate under, or what I understand I should be doing? Did it go through your mind, um, I'm now blowing the whistle? It did, to be honest. And I went to a really good presentation the other week by Whistleblowers UK, and they had a slide on it where it said, you know, what is a whistleblower? First person, you know, it's someone who's kind of making trouble, someone who's... You know, I was winding everyone up, a bit of a busybody, or is it just somebody who's just trying to do their job? And that's all I was trying to do. I was just trying to do what I knew was the right thing to do. It was a bit of a no-brainer to me. I mean, if you're meant to be managing an account, you've got full discretion on it. Why would you take constructions off someone else anyway? And then when to be told that, and the, the girl that I dealt with at the other party, she said to me that they wanted to distance themselves from the relationship. Just it doesn't take a genius to figure out that that's not good. I, I mean, I figured out the kind of wider implications of it not too long after, but um, yeah, it didn't sit right with me. I knew we used to have recorded lines, we then didn't have recorded lines. They wanted to give us instructions over these unrecorded lines, and then I'd send them back saying, you know, I've thought of doing this. It's just madness. And it sat so far outside of everything else that I did. Um, the structure of the accounts, the assets in the accounts. It was just madness, but I wrote all this down and it, all, it was all shown in the tribunal. I tried my best to just get the senior staff to see that it was a bad idea, because ultimately it was a bad idea for business. Aside from anything else, it was just, and this is a company that I had worked for, I'd given them three hard years of my life, and I worked hard for them. And as a small business, I wanted to see them be successful, and it was just a terrible idea to do. So I tried to explain this to them, but they just weren't interested. And then, as I say, I went to compliance next. And one of the problems you've got, I know that you're more concerned with the government side of things, but government's kind of fortunate in that it's a big entity, so you could have one bit of government completely independent to another bit of government. Someone could go and report to. You can go talk to someone from a I don't know, DOI if you work in a different part of government, whatever. I didn't have that luxury because I worked in a company that was about 12 people large. Um, the senior staff were... Powerful personalities, should we say, whereas the compliance, not so powerful, so they just steamroll the compliance, if I'm honest. Um, 
so any reports I did make to compliance didn't really get treated the way they should have done, I don't think. Um, so, yeah, I didn't realise I was blowing whistle at any point, to be honest. And like when you, for me, when I've joined a job, um, you read the terms and conditions and how you're meant to be treated, uh, your rights as an employee. You kind of, for me, I've always just browsed over them and I've never really gone into depth uh, to try and understand them all. So I really didn't actually know a lot, a lot about what was happening. I just knew it wasn't right and I just did what best I thought I could. I didn't, it just, I just didn't expect it to ever end up the way it did to. Did they have any policy on whistleblowing? Yeah, they did have a policy in the um, uh, employment handbook thing, but I didn't. I didn't. I guess I didn't really kind of pay too much attention to it because everyone that was involved in it was kind of complicit in what I was blowing the whistle on. I had and, and I, having worked there for years, I knew how it worked. So it's all very well that things are written down and you know everyone's independent and so forth but it just was not the reality at all so for me to try and follow it would have just got me in well it would have ended up where i ended up anyway to be honest but um yeah it was written down but words are words so you felt that there was no independence if you did go down the route of the policy no they tried to tell me that there was later during the tribunal um they referenced the non-executive director but i knew how he'd been involved in the business and it's just just was no independence whatsoever, none. Can I, can I just ask about your Chartered Institute of Securities yeah. Investments and that, like that's the regulatory body obviously for the for the area you work in? What, they're not regulatory, so I just didn't talk. It's a qualification that you've got yeah. but you can go to them as a director of that organisation? They're, um, I can't think of the word for them actually, um, they uh, I, I can't think of it, but basically, I I did go to them. No, unfortunately, they were pretty disinterested. Um, I rang up and explained it to someone. Fair enough, I only got probably a junior person answering the phone, but she wasn't bothered at all. So I, I kind of gave up on that avenue. Um, but is that normally a place that you should be able to report other people so. within the industry? You know, I within that so. area. Okay. Um, Maybe I didn't go down the right avenues, but by the point I got talking to them, I'd already engaged my own legal counsel because um, I knew that was the thing I had to do. That was the only thing I could do, I thought. Um, because there is, I didn't know about Whistleblowers UK either. I've sort of learned a bit more about them since. Um, for example, they will take on cases on a no win, no fee basis, which is something that we can't do over here but because they're in the UK they can do it I think um, so I probably would have gone to them had I known that because um, for me I needed legal representation because as you see I'm not great at kind of putting myself across in public situations so I needed I needed someone on my side so I went to Man Benham who was absolutely fantastic um, and it was just a stroke of luck really because they had a first hour free thing so I had no money whatsoever, so I went to them just for the first hour, and it just it ended up that I was kind of partnered up with someone who was perfect for the task. Um, but yeah, no. In terms of support, my main support just came from my family and my friends and my girlfriend. Went out there, might have been a very dark place, but um, 
Yeah, CISI weren't much help. The FSA, they were good, but they were very hamstrung because they they couldn't they can't side with anybody. They it's not their business to do that. Um, so they they I wouldn't expect any more than I got from them. They're just doing their jobs. Um, you said that um, the only support that you had was from family and friends. Um, in an ideal world, what kind of support would you like to see for whistleblowers? Yeah, it's it's a tough one because you're not. I wasn't actually a whistleblower until a year and a half down the line. You're not a whistleblower until someone's decided you're a whistleblower. You're just a person complaining. I had to go through the tribunal. By the time I'd actually got a verdict saying, yeah, the tribunal thinks you're a whistleblower. I already owed my lawyer over £100,000. <laughs> I was just... It, it's... I don't know a way around that. I don't have an answer to that. But it's very difficult to even get to that point. Um, for me, you really need legal support. And it needs to be at a price that's plausible because I've only been able to get through what I have because I don't have any children, any dependents or anything like that. I just would not have been able to take the risks I've taken without, if I had someone dependent on me, I just couldn't do it. I kind of, I had to sign my house over as collateral to my lawyer because I just didn't have any money and he was obviously concerned about me paying him because we were miles away from ever winning. Um, understandably, but I just, there's nothing I could do, so I had to do it. Um, so yeah, we it would even if we just had someone on the phone who knew a bit about law, who could kind of say, you should do this, you should do that. Because another thing I found later down the line is once you put in your tribunal form, to actually change it is, is the huge process as well. And then you're going to come up against objections from the other side, because in my case, they objected about everything under the sun, reasonable or not. Um, so for example, you can make a claim for detriment. I didn't know that. I just put my claim in for whistleblowing. Um, you can actually make a claim for detriment while still being employed by your employer. You can still be there and you can make a claim for detriment. Um, you can also, with whistleblowing, attach individuals to a claim, which is something I might have looked to have done. Um, by the time I'd realised that was possible, I was far too far down the line for me to make those changes. Um, so yeah, I mean, to be honest, I've only really got to this conclusion with a lot of luck because one of the people that I spoke to earlier at the start, one of my friend's dads who happened to be an HR director, and he just basically taught me HR in about 10 minutes, and I, it was through him I was able to know when to respond and know what to say when I was being offered these opportunities to uh, present my case, and I wouldn't have had a clue otherwise, and they wouldn't have been able to use that against me. Um, Men's industrial relations were good, um, Julie was good, but again I think bit like the FSA that she can't get stuck in to help she can only just offer advice and when you've got no idea what you're doing and you're on your own you need instructions like you need a bit more assistance um, yeah. so like a kind of a helpline would be really good a helpline with an actual someone on the end of it who knows employment law okay thank you um, um. <laughs> One of the things that we've been thinking about and looking into is the current structure of whistleblowing law. Um, now, obviously, the Isle of Man legal position mirrors the UK, although it's behind the UK because the UK's changed again. Yeah. But 
it is clear to us that the operation of whistleblowing protection at the moment lays everything around the employment relationship. Mm. So what you've described and the hell you've been through over three years is you having to defend yourself Mm. and through that mechanism the whistleblowing comes to the fore and a decision is made about it. I don't know what your views would be on scope to change the way the law operates so that there is more of an obligation on organisations when they are alerted by someone to an issue that there is actually an, a positive legal obligation on an organisation to act at least to start looking into it to investigate and where there's a regulator potentially to report to that regulator that they've been told something and this is what they're doing I don't know what your thoughts are I think in finance it is meant to work a little bit like that um, well, I think that's a fantastic idea I, I, I do always wonder how kind of hamstrung we are by UK law because I know we can make our own law but I know we also do kind of follow legal um, presence in the UK and, and you know 95% of the stuff that was brought up in my tribunal comes from UK presidents so it's clearly important but if we can diverge away and do our own things that would be a great idea um, because I think like especially with my case and there's another big case as well with a guy against government that's also going to be an important case we do have a real opportunity now to um, really tidy it up like what I've been through it's no fault of anyone it's just it's never happened before so I've found loads of bits of the process that just kind of won't fit for purpose so like one example I have written down here is I found that the uh, tribunal were only able to I mean a lot of this changed thankfully with the employment equality rules but the tribunal was only able to award £500 in expenses and I was a fair bit over £500 so that was you know not much use to me at all um, but to highlight how so I, I have brought these issues up with um, people in government and then I think it was listened to because you know changes we've had is now you can have a preparation time order because like something I really saw was just the amount of time I had to give to this because I wanted to read through every last thing before it went out because this was so important to my life I had to give I I wanted to make sure that I would never have any regrets that I didn't give it everything I possibly could so I'd be set up till 3 in the morning on Tuesday working the next day just going through things reading them writing them down I like my sleep so that's that's a big thing for me but um, so yeah so that's a positive change. Um, they've increased the cost now to 2000 without a detailed assessment, so that's quite important as well, because um, for a detailed assessment it has to be sent to High Court. Um, there's a change in the ruling where the tribunal now needs to consider a party's ability to pay, whereas it used to just, you know, it could if it wanted to, but now it has to. Um, but the tribunal's over, overriding objective is to ensure parties on equal footing. Um, so I think we're going to go down that road, and if we can make changes to the rules that would see that happen, that would be great. Um, yeah, with my case, um, an interesting kind of point came out in the law that I was in my original award. I was given aggravated damages and exemplary damages, and those two elements, although not the largest part of the award, they were really important to me because they showed that the tribunal really did think that I was really badly treated. Um, unfortunately, the High Court Deemster had to remove those elements because he felt that they weren't particularised well enough, which is fair enough, but he also felt that he didn't have the legal ability to make those awards. I, I 
was really disappointed in that because it just leaves the, the compensation and, and you know it's a big figure don't get me wrong but in theory it's all just about compensating me to where, where I would be work wise there's 5,000 involved for injuries of feelings which is not even close to <laughs> my injured feelings um, you know I've supposedly just basically been given all the money that I would have earned there's nothing to show any kind of judgement on the conduct that I've had to endure to go through all this so if we could kind of provide a clarification on that that would be great um, can, can I just um, go back to where you, you said that um, an independent helpline because um, obviously a protected disclosure um, you have to report it to your current employer yeah have you thought how how that could be? Have you thought what would have been what would you have wanted at the end of that phone call? I oh, suppose. <laughs> I am. Um, pat me on the back and tell me it'll be okay. Um, yeah, I know it's tough because as an island, we, we, there's not many of us here, so having a twenty-four hour man phone line would be difficult and would be kind of cost burden to it um, but you do there are points where you, you need advice there and then um, so I guess right at the start when I, when I was getting invited to my investigative meeting for example if I had a wrong house that helpline and they'd have been able to say to me you know you could go but you don't have to go this would potentially mean that this might happen or that this might happen because <clears throat> I was going into a lot of decisions with no idea what would what that meant if I went one way or the other I didn't know the implications that would follow to it um, and as I say Manx industrial relations were helpful but the law is a very tricky beast um, so like one of the things that occurred in it is when we've got our first judgement tribunal and it's, this hasn't been released um, I'm in trouble with this but the tribunal used the word dishonesty um, and the um, respondent was able to try and use a legal argument against us that we'd never actually raised the concept of dishonesty against them. So therefore, it kind of rendered the judgment null and void, which, I mean, when I read it, I, my head nearly exploded. I just couldn't believe it. It was the most ridiculous thing I'd ever heard. But it, it was something that they could legally do. And then they actually managed, the tribunal took it on board and did reword the judgment significantly afterwards and it's just things like that I mean had I known that I had to call them dishonest I would have done that on the first line of my tribunal application I just and so I'm, the initial signposting you feel is key to you definitely being able to give the people start, it is very important to the rest of it like really important but I just you just wouldn't know that if you weren't an employment lawyer and even then You'd need a good employment lawyer because you know if you take the wrong turns you could end up with a claim that's very valid that gets thrown out for whatever weird legal technicality um i mean whistleblowing to be honest i don't i don't think it ever needs to end up at this point it's just and i don't i can't fathom why it had it came as far as it did i just can't get my head around why they acted the way they did but um here it is and I'd like to think that this probably won't happen again particularly with 
the guy who's taking on the government. In the other case, I think that'll make a big difference as well because there's a bit of perception over here that the government kind of sweeps things under the carpet and the government is never accountable. So that, I mean, that proves it is. And now is a great time for us to be going through this process and kind of cleaning it all up. That was Mr Rob Sutton giving evidence to the Tinwald Whistleblowing Committee last week. More after this. Men's Radio The Nation Station Manx Radio Welcome back to Perspective on Manx Radio. Time to rejoin last week's Whistleblowing Committee hearing with Mr Rob Sutton with a question from Jane Poole Wilson, MLC. You talked about not understanding why the people in your organisation behaved in the way they did and it brings us on to another area that we've talked about which is the culture of organisations, the culture of government, the culture of different organisations and why it is that they lock down and deny and try and squash yeah. something yeah. as opposed to listen and yeah. investigate and then maybe do something about it. Have you got any thoughts at all mm-hmm. on what what drives that what makes the difference as to whether individuals do listen and try and do the right thing or not i think i listened to one of these previous sessions with the guy from the cabinet office i think and he he, he said he felt that they had a good culture and the whistleblowing was probably not likely to really occur and I, i i would go with that i could see how that would would exist because i don't think in a government there's the same sort of incentives to misbehave but finance is a bit different because there's money involved and the people at the top they want to just do what they want to do should we say so things that get in the way um, it's better to steamroll over them Um, so yeah I think the motivations are are different in the private sector Um, I do think as well finance particularly because finance is what I know and some people are hesitant to let go of the kind of 80s and 90s and the way that it used to be then commission here commission here do this do that you know it doesn't really matter the world's not like that anymore you can't do these things and hope to get away with it it's just not worth the risk of someone like me I'm, I'm early in my career as well I was expected to put my signature on these multi-million pound fantasy deals I just no chance I just always not willing to do it um, so yeah motivations I, I think as I've said it's money is a motivator um, I think people as well arrogance definitely is a factor because people just think they look at you and think oh you know we'll steamroll him and I, th- I think that in my case um, my opponents tried to just silence me by kind of bankrupting me basically I um, again as I've said before it's only good fortune that I got to where I was because my my advocates were absolutely fantastic they were so willing to work with me in ways that probably a lot of advocates wouldn't and like I say given that my house is collateral I had significant equity in my house so it was the only thing I could do um, how's I going with that uh, yeah so Sorry. What and, 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 and the people, people's motivations, sorry, and what yeah. makes the difference? Do you think? So, do you think the consequences of not doing the right thing are where they should be? Do you think it's if it's not about people being motivated to yeah. do the right thing, 
are the consequences out of line with massively oh yeah I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend this to anybody um, even me now in the position that I'm in with my ward and my name clear I still wouldn't recommend it and I and I know it's a significant amount of money but I would not recommend it to anyone it's um, it's just almost lose-lose uh, even now uh, so like like there's something that I have a bit of bone to pick with the tax scenario on it. I um, I've been I've been awarded enough money that I can cover my tax bills. But if I've been awarded a hundred grand, there's a, there's a bracket of thirty thousand that you get kind of tax free, and then after that you just tax as normal income, regardless of how it comes up. So even though in my case part of it was an award, that it would be a capital gain if it occurred outside of the employment tribunal. They kind of just saying to me, "Ah, it's income tax." So if I've been awarded 100 grand and I owe my lawyer 100 grand, not only would I pay that on 100 grand that I owe my lawyer, I'd get my 30 grand tax free and then I'd be taxed income tax on the other 70. So I get to pay my lawyer 100 grand, including that, and I'd be left with a deficit of 14 grand <laughs> to clear my name. It, it just does not make any sense at all. Um, well, I know mine, but as I said, this is where mine's a bit of a unique situation. We've never had an award of my size. And that was one of the, going back to the motivations thing, that was one of their motivations, I think, because there was a point where they, none of their arguments against my request for my award was basically, it's not happening, it's never happened before, so it will never happen now. And I kind of read it, like, you know, that's kind of weird that you, that, that's literally your defense. It's just, it's never happened before, so it's never happening now. You know, it's 2019. So I, I just kind of shrugged my shoulders at that. But I genuinely think that was one of their motivations. They, they looked at this and thought, this will probably cost us 100 grand. He'll never be able to, to take this all the way to the end. We'll make it last as long as we can. We'll fight everything we possibly can. We'll throw money at this and he'll just give up at some point. But I'm a bit more tenacious than that. And I was fortunate enough to have someone that, as I say, backed me all the way through it. Um, so yeah, that's another little snippet. <laughs> So, with with regards to, um, I'm, I'm going going back a little bit to what what you said. It said at the start, you said you, you recorded covertly and yeah. that, and obviously then they tried to take you to a disciplinary hearing, and obviously you sought advice and you didn't turn up and that. How at at that point, what was it? External advice you were receiving or? Had your lawyer come on board at that point or not? No, that, that was right. where Mayor Manson's Industrial Relations helped me out there, actually. Um, just to give me that little bit of technical knowledge that you need to have, or good practices to have, give 48 hours notice, I think it is. I think it's 48 hours. And they told me that, and I was given that 11, so I didn't... They, they kind of said to me, you know, you've got a good angle there to, you know, not attend if you don't want to. Aside from the fact that... I, it would have been a pointless exercise anyway because I would have just been shouted down. Um, so that you know that and that did come up later because the tribunal do look to see whether you have followed due process and whether you have followed best practice. And I was then able to show these documents and show that I had, thanks to advice I was given, done what I should have done. Um, I, I would, and I'm probably not allowed to thank them, but the tribunal were very good for this. they were um, they just saw things for what they were they they weren't unduly um, focused on the technicalities although 
it was a big part of it. They, I think they just saw the wider picture a lot of the time and with all the evidence that came out, um, they just, they saw the light thankfully, so. Um, sorry, I keep, I forget where I just waffle on. Um, what was the question? Going in a slightly different direction, I mean, yeah. one of the things that we have heard some people raise with us is the idea that people should be able to raise concerns confidentially or through anonymised reporting. I mean, it sort of sounds like from your experience... I don't know whether you have any thoughts on that, whether that would have made any difference to you, whether you think that's something that should be explored. Well, that, again, that's a great idea. And I could see it's definitely how it would work for the government because you could just have one kind of central email box where you can send things to. Um, you're actually, you're anonymous. No, no, I can't say that word, but that, it, it's a very important thing. And whistleblower, it's one of your writers to be anonymous whereas I'm glass all over the papers. Um, I can't. I can't have my anonymous that word again um, I don't have that anymore but that would just resolve a lot of problems because you could just send your email or whatever it was and then no one know you've done it um, and hopefully some action would be taken it would be lovely if there could be something like that for private sector as well because there are a lot of small firms over here um, and as I say if I tried to do that to an inbox in the company I worked in, it would have not taken minutes to figure out who had done it. Um, so it would have just been redundant. And you know, the kind of, even then with that kind of thing, there was, I don't know if you know about the case of Barclays CEO, Mr. Staley, he, um, someone made an anonymous whistleblown submission at Barclays and he tried to identify who it was. That's a CEO of a multinational business. and. He thought it was wise to do that. So there's, there's still risks even to that kind of system, but that would be far preferable to what I've had to go to, definitely. That's a good idea. I mean, one, one of the things, one of the challenges back to the confidential route is once something's raised, it then has to be investigated. So I think one of the problems that perennially comes yeah. up is once you've alerted a problem, yeah. you mentioned, for example, the WhatsApp transcripts that needed to be printed out and, yeah. and the whole thing then looked into to see exactly what had been going yeah. on. So I think that's one of the problems and, and that we've heard that from regulators and people that do then investigate these things yeah. is that it's not enough sometimes. They do need to yeah. go back to the person to get the detail. Yeah. So I don't know whether you've got any thoughts on how that could be managed. It's, yeah, that's really difficult because the person who's involved in it is the person that knows the most mm. about it. Um, I don't know. I Yeah, I'd have to think a bit more about that one. Um, because it is really difficult. Definitely, I mean, if you kept it external, if you did have to speak to someone externally, you could still do that without having to talk with any, without anyone in your business knowing what's happening. Um, and you know, had I, it's a, I mean, the FSA, in my case, only found out because client, compliance did actually notify them. So although I don't think compliance did enough, or did what they could have done, they did do the right thing there in telling the FSA and Although that kind of ultimately caused what I had to go through, it was the right thing to happen. And because of that, the FSA did come down, did ask the questions, and it could have been just as easy that one of my colleagues had, had notified compliance and compliance had told the FSA they would still have come down, they would still have talked to me, 
um, because I was involved in it. I don't know whether maybe if the FSA had talked to me outside of work, maybe that would have helped a bit. Well, maybe they didn't expect it to turn around, to turn the way it did, and for me to be treated heavy handedly as I was. Um, yeah, I'll have to think about that. But being just being able to do do it externally, outside of your, your company, it just mm. makes so much difference. And just, just one more question on that. Did you think about approaching the FSA directly? Because you said compliance did approach them, but yeah. did you, and what were your thought processes about? Well, I'd, I'd known that, or I'd seen that people in senior positions at our place had gone for closeout interviews with the FSA, and this was my first position as a as a key person, which is like a, you are a regulated individual, and um, and I actually just thought it was kind of part of the course. So in my mind, I'd always been waiting for that. So I was just going to go to them. By the way, this is this. I'm a way out, um, and I'd always I'd, I'd, I'd always expected that to happen. So in my mind, I always knew it was going to happen. So I didn't. To me, I didn't need to do anything in the interim. I kind of covered covered my back really and then I was going to close it out and then be on my way um, so this was actually we're going to leave the employer yeah, and go to your next yeah. job you were going to do a yeah so I originally disclosure that way yeah I reported it in June um, 2015 I think it was and then I'd handed my notice in in November something like that I think and so I, I you know I had all all the evidence I'd been collecting and it was there on my phone and I expected to have a close out interview with the FSA and I would have just said to them then you know, you should know about this because I've told compliance, but if you don't, here it is. Mm. Here's all the evidence. And that would have been that. And, and in theory, um, creatures would have never known that I was going to do that. Thank you. Can I just go on from that? Because um, when, when you talked, you said that you didn't know you were a whistleblower. Yeah. Um, can you sort of explain to us, you know, you obviously didn't know, you know you are now. Yeah. Um, at what point, what, what made you realise that actually this is serious and it is whistleblowing or was it only when you approached MERS because of the disciplinary? Because they tried to turn it onto yeah. you at that point. Was that when you thought actually... I always knew that the issue was this big issue. Like what I was blowing the whistle on is not good. But um, So I always knew it, the severity of it. Um, my own personal situation, I guess I didn't realise the severity of it until um, my new employers called me up and said, what's going on here? And then I was like, ah, I can't actually tell you because this is a protected disclosure. And then all the kind of textbooks I'd read started to kind of come up in my head and I was going to think, this is actually kind of turning into something a little bit um, serious here. So I suppose it was that point. The whistleblowing concept—it's a word I'm not really in love with. It's—it's kind of like it's not got great connotations with. I don't think. Um, got any suggestions? <laughs> well, it's got like the story behind it's good. It's from the police days. I'm sure you all know all this, but um, I don't know really. Um, Do you feel the word whistleblown puts people off because of the implications of front page news type? Just, I think, as, as you guys have kind of said, it's the realisation of it as well. I, I never went into this thinking, I'm a whistleblower, but, I mean, you can be a whistleblower if you kind of, if the kettle in the kitchen, you know, doesn't, the switch doesn't turn off properly, you're a whistleblower then, and it's, 
Um, it's so a, the independent reports in you would view as quite a priority for the committee to consider. An independent the, review? An independent reporting of oh, any, anything. So you said, you know, you, you've, you've mentioned external reporting. You think oh, yeah. that would be key to Absolutely. give people... Absolutely. But it, 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 it is delicate as well, because I do think you can get kind of ambulance chaser kind of characters who are trying to engineer a whistleblowing situation because they're just they're not good employees or whatever else, or they know they're on the way out. So, And I think you could do that if you... If you kind of master the law behind it I think you probably could do that so it's it is very important whichever way you go to f figure out how to properly treat the situation too so as soon as you're aware that someone is trying to be a whistleblower you need to kind of make sure you treat them properly um, because yeah there could be um, outcomes that aren't maybe suitable to well the situation that was Rob Sutton there giving evidence to the Tinwald Select Committee on whistleblowing. Join us again after the news at one o'clock. Fast am I and welcome back to Perspective on Manx Radio. This week we're listening to the Tinwald Select Committee on whistleblowing following its recent evidence session with Rob Sutton. Onken MHK Julie Edge was appointed to chair this committee and is joined by MLCs Jane Poole-Wilson and Kerry Sharp. You were talking about uh, anonymised portals yeah. um, and um, what I was wondering was, do you think that if there was an increase in the use of um, independent anonymised portals, could it inadvertently work against... <laughs> increasing an openness within the work culture where yeah. staff felt on a daily basis that they were quite free to yeah, talk about yeah. things when, they, when, when, when they're just at the level of this doesn't sit easily with yeah. me, you know. Yeah, no, that, that, that is a very good point. And it's, it's kind of difficult to assess really because it is ultimately the idea of kind of your compliance department. That's what they're there for in most businesses you can report these concerns to your compliance. Um, and I do think in most larger businesses that, that does work sufficiently well, but it's just smaller businesses where it's a little bit more difficult. Um, I think that probably would be something that you'd have to assess and deal with, but it'd be maybe a transitory phase in employment law because we've gone from a situation where, you know, if this had happened to me 10 years ago, I wouldn't have had a chance. I literally no chance um, we're just fortunate that employment law has developed sufficiently um, to the point now where cases like mine do occur um, and I think that would be the next the next step it's probably like an overindulgence of people claiming to be whistleblowers but let's if it was a signposted system so from what Mrs Sharp's described if it was signposted you would know whether to go to that that area yeah. or go to another, yeah. wouldn't you, with regards to policy within companies? But yeah, that's <clears throat> because, as I say, your compliance place should always be your first point of call. But the signposting would be very useful as well because you you'd kind of cut down the deluge of people just firing in um, complaints basically all the time because you know, like a complaint about financial services or a, a whistleblowing incident disclosure about financial services. 
really does need to go to the FSA or something like that because they have the technical knowledge to know what's going on. Um, I think, although you might get a lot of people trying to ask sort of ambulance chase, there does have to be some kind of meat behind what you're saying, really. And if you send these uh, disclosures to the right places, it should be quite quick for the people at the other end to sift through them and say what's, what's a disclosure and what's not. That wouldn't solve a situation whereby, like I said, if you've got an employee who's probably on the way out anyway, they can't just pick up something and say, you know what, this has never been right, but I'm going to complain about it now, and then I can try and engineer myself a claim out of it, because that could happen. But then, could you even say that that's the wrong thing to do because if they're fixing the problem, you know, the, the motivations might not be right, but if something's getting repaired at the end of it, I suppose they are whistleblower. Um, yeah, because I just think like it. It never needs to get to this point because people that are, are whistleblowing are just generally doing it because something's not right, and it doesn't take a lot to just look at the problem and fix the problem, and that, that's the end of it. So, just picking up on that, it seems to me that one of the things that would help people who are trying to do the right thing is that level of trust and independence that you can if in, in an ideal world you'd be able to raise it with an immediate line manager who would listen and look into it yeah. and maybe even resolve it yeah. um, but I suppose it's the routes available to people if they don't feel that locally yeah. Yeah. that local resolution happens and you've described that in some organisations a compliance function or an internal yeah. body might be the right place but yeah. not necessarily in a small place so then the question is what are the other routes that someone can go have confidence that not only is this person or area independent but there's another piece of it which is knowledge which yeah. is if it's technical yeah. are yeah, they the really people important. who have the technical knowledge to appreciate what is being raised yeah. and whether there's something in it yeah. um and then I suppose, so a regulator might be able to do that, but you've already made the point that a regulator also has to sit between individuals and organisations. So it would seem there's still a gap in terms of support for the individual, which is back to sort of equality of arms, yeah. advice to them, understanding yeah. all the ramifications of what you're doing. Yeah. Have you got any further thoughts on what what might work as a source of advice. I mean, you've praised the advocate you had. Yep. So it might be good legal advice, but then have you got any thoughts on how you can obtain that? Because obviously there is a cost that goes yeah. with it. Yeah, so the um, legal aid, legal aid was good, you know, when I got it. But you, you, that can kind of end up in a, a sticky situation. With legal aid actually as well, if I remember rightly, it's not available for employment issues, I think. Correct, it's not available for the tribunal. Yeah, there's a little, that's right, yeah. So that really didn't help. Um, but then also you kind of get to a situation where where I got, I, I needed to get a job, but then had I been able to get um, legal aid all the way through, it really wouldn't have been in my interest to get a job. Like it just wouldn't have made sense. So that's not exactly the solution either there to just dish it out. Um, and yeah, I must actually, I give praise to the job seekers guys because they were really useful. And that as an avenue was, invaluable to me just to even be able to claim the small amount of job seekers payments that I did get because um, ultimately I ended up having to default on loans, credit cards uh, I had to go interest only on my mortgage but whilst I was trying 
to still fight the fire, they were really useful until the point where the money just wasn't enough anymore. Um, yeah, I, it, it's the biggest problem with it is the resource of the legal skills because it's just so expensive. But I would not, I wouldn't be here without my advocate. There's no doubt in my mind I wouldn't be here without him. Um, he became my kind of voice piece to express what I'd been through and he knew the right ways to do it, when to do it, when not, when to... So, um, I don't honestly know. I, I don't know if you'd... Because you, you get an advocate, a duty advocate, if you're, you know, you committed a crime and you can't afford it. So, is that fair? That someone, a criminal, can have an advocate for free and a whistleblower can't? Mm-hmm. I don't... doesn't sit well with me, that, to be honest. Um, and it... It's the problem that really dis- will discourage whistleblowers. At, at the moment, I, I can't recommend it to anyone because, you know, I I have known someone who probably could gone have gone down a similar road, but they had they had children, as I say, and they just couldn't do it. So the perpetrator gets away with their miscreant behaviour, and that just it's just missed out on, unfortunately. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about your um, experience of the law in this area in terms because because I think one of the rationales probably historically for not allowing legal aid at the employment tribunal is it's supposed to be an easily accessible forum for both parties to come and yeah, talk about yeah. the yeah, breakdown yeah. of an employment relationship but you've also talked about the you know what needing to become an HR expert and yeah. getting advice and so can you tell us a little bit about your view on the yeah. So that that's, navigating it, as it's it were. a good, it's a real good subject. This one because the tribunal, as I say, they were really good. They gave they gave my opponents as many opportunities as they kind of could, which initially really wound me up. But then I realised it's because I think they wanted to explore every available avenue. So then my opponent couldn't then come back and say, oh, you haven't done this, which they tried to do anyway. They accused the tribunal of being biased twice. They tried to make the tribunal recuse itself. This being despite the fact that they actually hid key evidence um, and there was, they didn't play by the rules either. You know, I, I just, even at this point, I didn't get a fair fight. So there was a point where the tribunal instructed us both to file um, arguments at the same time. We filed ours, they didn't file theirs. A day later, they filed ours. In retaliation to us, which they weren't meant to do, it was meant to be done at the same simultaneously. And uh, again, the tribunal, I think, probably should have reprimanded them for that, but because they were getting fired, accusations of bias and the rest, I think they didn't. Um, so yeah, to actually navigate, it could be very simple. And I, I've read loads of tribunal cases now, and I've seen them; they have been very simple. Um, you can just go in and. You know, you're in for a day, you talk to, you know, you've got your ex-boss standing in front of you. They go through it all, no problem. Mine was very, very complex just by the nature of it. Um, I would like to think that not many cases will ever be as complex as mine. Um, but for me, navigating it, there is a fair bit of information available about what happens to you but not so much about the implications of it because it's very much a process where you have to make the right move every time. And if you don't, you just it'll just come back to bite you. You'll get accused of doing something else or saying that you've you've missed out a step or you know you should have said this earlier. 
Um, and also the, the law element to it was really took over. So whilst it started off being about finance and obviously I knew what I was talking about, um, when it started turning into like a big legal debate, I was just kind of redundant really. And that's where having my lawyer was so important. Um, because those, those things in there, like they, they tried to introduce an argument that they weren't misbehaving because in their own view of the world, they weren't misbehaving. And that came down to an old legal case that had been ongoing for um, 30 odd years. Gosh, the Gosh test, it's called. Never heard of the Gosh test. I had no idea what it was. But it was kind of a bit of a challenge we had to face. And as I said before, with me getting lucky, there was a case in England that had gone through um, the courts there where the highest court and Supreme Court I think it was they overruled the Gosh test and kind of nullified it so this was a, an angle they were trying to use unfortunately for them it got taken away from them but that's just good fortune that that uh, maybe that could have gone the other way um, but it was like all these concepts about kind of objective realities and how different people envisage things and they were just trying to obfuscate the reality of it, you know, you can go into court and I can say, mm, the sky's green. It's quite clearly not green, but we have to sit there and debate about it. And then legal parameters come in and people say, well, this case, someone said it was green, someone said it wasn't green. And then you waste three months just doing that. And as I say, I think this was a tactic they were using to just try and ramp up the costs, to just try and bleed me out of it, just by saying things that just didn't really make any sense. But they could do it. That's what the law lets you do. Um, so it's the tribunal then are placed in a difficult position because they, if they were to just say, I'm not having any of this, this is rubbish, they then use that as an excuse to say, oh, you're being biased against us now, you're not letting us present our case properly. So again, this is where technical knowledge comes in um, because these are situations without my lawyer, had I been representing myself, I probably made the wrong move and then that's it, game over for me. So just to clarify, would you then say that um, any written information that was available to you in terms of advice for the ordinary person on the street is just not be, clear enough? Can be. I, do, I just, my, I do think mine is a bit of an anomaly of a case. Um, and as I say, I've, I've read a lot of them where they have been quite simple and they just go in and kind of talk it out. The tribunal makes a decision one way or another because the reality is, for like I'm, I like to think I'm kind of play devil's advocate a lot and you, two people can go in there with opposing arguments but they're both telling the truth but it's their version of the truth they just see the event differently so you can go in and fight it out whereas mine was not like that at all um, you know they were trying to gloss over the truth but um, yeah so for the common person I don't I think there's enough to be honest I mean more information is always welcome for someone like me I as I said, I just read and read and read and read and read, and I actually have a fair grasp of employment law now because I just read that much of it. Um, but more is always welcome, and it's also it's also knowing about it too because a lot of this information has been out there for however long, but it's not something I've ever come across because I've never had a need to. Um, and funnily enough, when you're up against uh, an opponent they're not pointing it out to you, <laughs> you know, these are the people who were formerly your HR now they're against you so they're not going to give you any advice and 
you know in my case as well that's another point actually um, we had where, where I was working an HR function I had no idea existed so I literally did this when we went for this investigative meeting a woman turned up and uh, I was advised that she would be there and I actually said to my boss I was like are they from the FSA I said no it's your HR department and I was like what since when did we have an HR department no one had told me she existed and then when she turned up she had also been well and truly trodden on by senior management. She wasn't interested in what I had to say at all. And it's all evidenced in the um, the uh, covert recording I took. So yet again, there's another third party who let me down there. She shouldn't have, she, she should have listened to what I said because I was right. She wasn't interested at all. Um, yeah, then you know she existed because maybe I'd have approached her. Maybe I'd have said, well, I mean, I should, that, that should have been my logical move is to approach my HR department. But I didn't know who she was. But that's to me, that's just a procedural failing of the company. They should have made that clear to me on day one. It wasn't written anywhere in my uh, terms of employment. There's no, you know, you can contact so and so for this. Okay. I think from what you've said, there's obviously clear issues with with law changes that are quite quite important. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to? I just had one other question. When we think about the legislative framework, at the moment under the Manx law, it lists the areas that you could make a qualifying disclosure yeah. about. Um, one of the things that I thought was interesting in your case was, um, and it's also come up in um, a report that's just been published in Westminster by the all-party parliamentary group looking yeah. into whistleblowing is the idea of observing the spirit as well as the letter of the law. So it might be that the thing that doesn't sit comfortably or that you're concerned about is technically legal still, if you look at the yeah. wording of the, the current law or the current rules. But actually you might classify it as unethical or in some way wrong or designed to, to do something that you might say is unethical. So I don't know if you have any thought on that about if we were revisiting the law we have on protected disclosures and what qualifies as a disclosure, whether it ought to include the spirit as well as the letter of the law? It definitely should because I think the legal process is quite often open to abuse because there are, um, as I was saying by example, about the sky being green, if you know how to do these things, you can set out your store to purposefully you know, waste someone's resources. Um, that is not in the spirit of the law at all. That's the law is meant to be about justice, as far as I'm concerned. Um, so that would certainly be a useful thing to have. Yeah. See, another thing. It's not exactly related, but um, one of the problems I struggle with. I know in the government you're not going to struggle with this as much, but because um, it's the kind of resources of the person that's making the payment to you as well. So. For me, um, and I'll take this on a bit of a tangent, I had this award for X amount of money. I owe my lawyer X amount of money. And right until the end, I was anywhere in between these two scenarios. I had absolutely no idea. I could have still been kept my award, but they could have wound the company up, which I did suspect they were going to do for a long time. And then I would just be left with enormous debt to my lawyer. And I was actually, I found a report on this in the UK to buy it. Department for Business Innovation and Skills, they did a report in 2013. People who go to an employment tribunal, 49% of them get the full payment, 16% get part payment, 35% do it, no payment, nothing. 
you're not going to struggle without the government fair enough but you know if only 64% of people that actually win a tribunal get anything out of it I mean that's just what's the inspiration <laughs> like why would you do this um, so there's I mean I tried to get the courts to make them put part payments on account things like that naturally they were very hesitant about it and they, I'd say they were quite successful in that really. they managed to get we, we got very little out of them until the very last minute um, but like I say I was I was clear to whistleblower I had a substantial award but right until April this year all I actually had to show for it was massive massive debt to my lawyer and I didn't even own my own house it was just one or the other binary outcome almost and I'm seeing reports like this and that, that just does not fill me with hope. And I'd probably someone listen to me saying this, unfortunately, is going to think, do you know what? I don't fancy that. Mm. If you work for government, fair enough, because the backing's there. Um, but smaller company, it's not there. And that's something that certainly needs to be looked at, I think. I'm interested to know, before this whole process began, what kind of image did you have of whistleblowing? <laughs> I, I, you know, I probably sat on the other side of the fence. I probably would have said, "I hate these people who are always trying to, you know, make a fuss and try and claim that they're all do-gooders." And I would have been on that side of the fence, to be honest. Um, and that's probably from what I've seen of other cases over here, because I, and, and elsewhere, because I've seen plenty of cases that haven't been successful. People who are, you know, trying to kick up a fuss and haven't won for whatever reason, and it's. You know, it's been obvious. Um, yeah, I probably would sat on that side of the fence. I don't know whether. I don't know. It it's also goes back to like say the connotation of the whistleblowing thing. I don't. I don't like that. Like I, protected disclosures. I'm far more comfortable with that. That just sounds a lot. A lot better. Sounds like you're actually kind of doing the right thing. Um, Did you feel protected? No, not. no. But at what point did no. you did you throughout um, the whole process you uh, didn't feel it? No point. I've okay. Absolutely none whatsoever. If the law protects a whistleblower, as I say, you've got to prove you're a whistleblower. You mean I was hundred grand in already by the time I was proved I was a whistleblower? Um, so you think it's important that there is an element that the person who decides yeah. to go down the route that it's got to be protection from the outset? You need help. I don't know. I just can't get my head around how you do it because you kind of need help from the outset and if someone comes into you and says I'm a whistleblower and you give them loads of protection it turns out they're milking the system or they're not that's not you know that's not good but then as I was saying to you before you know if you're a criminal you get a juicy advocate so maybe you could have a juicy it's that initial filtering isn't it yeah. so that gives you then who, who makes the decision the, the roots yeah but if you had a legal you had a legal guy at the start and if you could just have five hours with a lawyer and explain how explain what happened to you and what you thought was going on they could probably make the choice there and then I, I think you, you said five yeah. hours why, why, why would you well, put what do you, what? I don't know 50 hours if I could have done um, <laughs> as many as you could possibly get okay. um, because as I say I it's only good fortune I ended up where I did I took my venom because they gave me a free hour I got one lawyer it was, I never really got to see what he was like because um, he then left the business and I got given my lawyer Chris um, whilst I was in Qatar at the time I just got an email saying 
And this was about a month before we were due to go to tribunal and say, oh, your lawyer's now left, he's a new lawyer. I was like, oh my God, this is not what I need. Um, and it just turns out that he was just the man for the job. So again, good fortune. Um, so yeah, you'd, you need, and not just a lawyer, you need someone with a lawyer who knows employment law. Because I think a lot of people who do law over here are little, to do bits of everything because there's not lots of, you know, you're not going to have an employment specialist because there's just not that much of it out there, which is fair enough. Um, you just need to decide who the experts are, maybe more than one, so it's not all just down to one person. Um, but yeah, that, that would make a big difference, I think. I think as well, because there's probably people who think they're whistleblowers and, you know, they've maybe not got the case for it. And that would be the point where, they, you know, the lawyer could say, free of charge, you're not got a case here. You need to kind of put it to bed and just move on with your life, because that's important as well. But, because this kind of thing just haunts you forever. Um, and as I said, when I put all the work into it, I did, I didn't want to ever have any writs about it. Um, yeah, I'm ramble from me there. Um, so independent reporting with a lawyer on the end would be really helpful. You said then that um, this still haunts you, this whole process. Mm. Um, We've had people before us, and their lives have clearly been adversely affected by the whistleblowing process. Yeah. Um, you know, it might be painful, but could you list for us all the implications, all the negative implications that that this process has had There's on any your life? Whistleblowers listening to this, they will not be whistleblowing when I haven't finished. But um, yeah, well, I mean. Uh, Debts is quite an easy one. I had, I had loans and credit cards. I had a reasonable job, and I was paying them off. I was fine. Um, then, when you're suddenly getting requests for a grand here, two grand here, three grand here, you just can't pay them. So, uh, I got six defaults registered against my name that stuck with them for another three years, I think. Uh, I can get a mortgage if I want to, but I can't get any more credit cards, loans, car finance, anything like that. Can't do it. Um, there's the kind of the effect it's had on me as a person, I, I kind of kind of struggle to talk about it to be honest. But I'm not the same person I was before I started this process, and I don't think I ever will be. Um, I've been to some very dark places over the past three years. Um, uh, yeah, like when I was um, just there's a day where I was sat in work, my previous job, and. Um, I've sat with my, I know I had my verdict. We were going to the point of maybe getting some money and they were making these ridiculous offers that would have left me with quite literally like next to nothing or even debts to my lawyer. And then, you know, he's under a lot of pressure from his business to pay, uh, to get me to pay. We had to have like a few frank discussions where he was like, you know, I'm not going to sway you either way, but this is a quite a severe situation we're in here. I just had my head in my hands and I was just thinking, you know, I, I'm meant to be the victor of the victorious party here. How, is, how am I in this situation? Um, so yeah, so it's the finance side of it. Uh, yeah, for me personally, um, I think career-wise, I mean, I'm lucky enough now to work for a guy who is cut from a bit of a different cloth. He's a bit like me. He, he sees the value in me, which is fantastic um, but not a lot of people would and I said in the tribunal if I wasn't 
in HR and I was faced with, you know, me and my identical twin and, you know, both equally qualified, etc. And I had one that was a whistleblower and one that wasn't a whistleblower. There's no doubt I would pick the one who wasn't a whistleblower. No doubt about it. And, you know, I might be able to work here, but I don't think I'll ever work abroad. Because all it's going to take one Google search and bang, there I am, top of the chart. Um, and that's just something I'm going to have to deal with. That was Rob Sutton speaking to the Tinwald Select Committee on whistleblowing. The final instalment is on its way after this. The Nation Station, Manx Radio. Pastor Mai, welcome back to Perspective on Manx Radio. Time now to rejoin the Tinwald Select Committee on Whistleblowing, speaking to Rob Sutton, who received a record-breaking £685,000 of compensation following a recent case he went through. The committee's chair is Julie Edge. Have you found it difficult to get back into employment since how long, you know, what yeah. period of time has it taken? It was absolutely impossible when it had just happened. But, and that's not anything I hold against anyone because um, if you're in a regulated entity and you've got someone trying to work for you and he says, well, I can't actually tell you what I've done, but I've been sacked from my last job. You're not going to go anywhere near him and that's absolutely fine. I don't hold that against anyone. Um, so yeah, I couldn't work in a regular industry for, well, I tried to, should I say. I, I couldn't hear because no one would give me a job, but I went out to Qatar um, as a strange job. I worked out there with no salary. Um, and although I, I absolutely loved out there, it, the job wasn't for me because it was literally like finance back here in the 90s. It was all commission driven and products that weren't very good. Um, so. I didn't work out and as I said I was getting lawyers fees here there, and everywhere and it just became untenable um, so I had to come home and then I couldn't work here so I worked um, at the brewery um, sort of snacking beer cakes um, I worked at Strand Shopping Centre did a bit of labouring down there um, because I didn't need to be qualified for that but that's another thing I didn't say if I gone to this point and I had been bankrupted, which I've been very, very close to being, I'd never be able to work in finance again as well. So, you know, I couldn't do my job anymore because to be a regulated person, you have you can't have bankruptcies against you. So the stakes were really high. Um, thankfully, I didn't get bankrupted um, because some of my, like, Lloyds were really good. I got my mortgage with them, they were great. They, the girl that really helped me through um, and I just managed to just about not go bankrupt. Do, do you feel, um, obviously, what what you've been through, and obviously there's been an award, do you feel, um, just f- from your experience, that there should, the perp- as you call them, the perpetrators, do you feel that justice has been done? Uh, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if I left here and I got another legal summons for, for slander or something ridiculous like that, but, um, no. Absolutely not. I mean, as I was saying before about the tax situation, the government, bar the job seekers, hasn't, and I suppose MERS, I mean, that's fair to say the government hasn't helped at all, but the government hasn't helped that much. And then as soon as you get the money, they're like, right, we'll have some tax. So I'm going to pay all tax. Surely shouldn't you be fining the people that are committing these, you know, whatever you want to call it. I mean, I know what happened there. And if you want to read through all the tribunal transcripts, it's pretty clear what's going on there. It's pretty clear it's not right. Um, someone should be paying for that. But they're not. So I don't know what's going on with that. 
not to say that it's not something ongoing, I just don't have a clue. But all of, I know at the moment that I'm expected to pay all these taxes and things, and they're not paying them, so I don't know. Yeah, thanks for that. Just, um, there's a certain irony here that the purpose of our whistleblowing legislation is to be able to have disclosure about potential wrongdoing. Um, but actually, you've just described, I suppose, why a lot of people wouldn't make a disclosure because of the impact it has and the ongoing impact it has. Do you think it would help at all if, there, if the law was reframed to require people to make disclosures? So it wasn't left to you. I mean, I know, I know you didn't think of whistleblowing and you were doing the right yeah. thing, but do you think it would make a difference if there was an obligation? I, I do you think that would help change the culture yeah, so it I, becomes more of a... That, it would be good, I think. Um, you can sort of, It's a bit of a kind of public mindset change, and I think my case, one of the reasons why I'm here doing all this stuff is because I think this is the time excuse me, to try and make that change, to try and um, kind of say to the public that it's okay to do these kind of things and I have to be the prior in the middle of it, so be it. Um, but... There is kind of those obligations in some industries, I think, like there is in my industry. Um, you're meant to report your concerns. Um, I think I think there is a legal obligation. Um, I might be wrong, but maybe it just is certain industries. But yeah, there certainly should be. Because if whistleblowing, in, by definition, or protected disclosures, there is a kind of set list, and it's things like, you know, if people's um, health is in danger, stuff like that. And I, I'm, I think there's a legal requirement with that because I, I just couldn't see that there wouldn't be. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, I think there should be. Okay, thank you. Yeah, it should be. I think, I think there's a lot of little bits of legislation within different areas because I'm sure there must be a food and safety thing with you know you, if you're in that kind of business or if you're in, you know, electrics or whatever else. I'm sure there must be some way that you have to make disclosures on these kind of things if you come across them but it would be nice to have an overarching thing you know because I guess somewhere like retail maybe there's not those kind of um, implications I'm not sure and I, I kind of on that as thought as well I don't know if it got cleared up during the Employment and Equality Act but it, there used to be uh, I think there was less protection for people who were defined as a worker as opposed to an employee I'm not sure that's been fixed or not, but that I found that quite weird. I was quite quite fortunate to be an employee because also I think there's a there's a period of time where you don't have any sort of employment law um, benefits, isn't this? And again, you know, do you have to wait out your probationary period before you blow the whistle? It's just things like that. They're not they're just discrepancies. They're not there because someone's put it deliberately it just hasn't been thought about and now's the time to think about these things I think one other thing which I think you said was when you were putting submissions into the tribunal you had certain date you had to do it but perhaps the, the company yeah. didn't always honour that do, yeah. do you that clearly you see as very unfair well, but yeah, um, you, you were given a deadline but it was extended for yeah, we were both, we were both given, um, yeah, simultaneous, I think was the word. We meant to have a simultaneous exchange of points. And they took ours, gave a lousy excuse, and then provided theirs the next day. 
clearly reactive to ours. It was just ridiculous. But as I say, I think the tribunal were hesitant to do anything about it because they were already being accused of being biased and everything else. So you think they'd viewed yours prior to putting their submission oh, oh, 100%, in? 100%, because there was bits of it that just retaliated to what we'd said in our one. That was madness. Um, there was another time where they didn't uh, they didn't observe a date they were meant to have foreman, just didn't do it. Um, as you say, I say, I wouldn't have minded as much if it had been a bit of a fair fight, but it was far from that. There, there was a report that they were, they just didn't they disclose even existed. There was basically a, a foundation of my whole case. But so basically, just to summarise that one, um, my complaints to compliance, which ultimately made their way to the FSA, were kind of drawn out in this FSA draft report, which was the catalyst for all the madness that I had to endure. Um, and their argument was that it didn't matter because it was only a draft report and they kept saying it's only a draft report, it's only a draft report. It went on for about a year, it's only a draft report. And then we weren't really sure what had happened because we don't know anyone in the FSA. We don't know, I don't know how these things work, Chris didn't. Um, and we eventually managed, I think we contacted the FSA to get them to explain how it usually works and they said, yeah, the final follows a draft. So we went to the tribunal, said this to them, uh, the tribunal then asked the opponents, and they said, oh yeah, we do have a final report for that year. Didn't, never had mentioned that it existed. So we were like, show us the report then. And it was basically exactly the same as the draft. That's <laughs> like ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. And we spent a year umming and ahhing about that. They were trying to tell us that the final report from the following year, long after I'd been dismissed, was more relevant than the final report from the year that all this had happened. And all the final report from the year in question did was completely ratified when it was in the draft report. It was just insane. And that's partly why I think the tribunal gave the kind of aggravated damages award, which unfortunately was then latter taken away. It's, um... But as I say, I'm not critical about the tribunal because I think they were in a difficult position. Um, I really don't think it's fair that you can just make an application for recusal and say, oh, you're biased because they didn't like what they were receiving from the tribunal. I think that's really untoward. But, as I say, it's a legal right that you can do, apparently. Hmm. Have you anything else that you would like to say that we perhaps haven't covered or...? (laughs) Um, I've always thought he'd make a good film, so if Ben Affleck was like, <laughs> play me, um, other than that. That was Rob Sutton there, giving evidence to the Tinwald Select Committee on whistleblowing following his record-breaking six-figure payout at a recent employment tribunal, following his dismissal from Creechurch Capital. The committee was represented by its chair, Julie Edge, MHK, Jane Paul Wilson, MLC, and Kerry Sharp, MLC. Slen Liu 